Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. The heir of Slytherin. He was standing at the end of a very long, dimly lit chamber. Towering stone pillars entwined with more carved serpents rose to support a ceiling lost in darkness, casting long black shadows through the odd greenish gloom that filled the place. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, this week we are talking about compassion and you're telling us a story. That's right. I am. Yeah. My son, Danny, who just turned eight years old, is a very sensitive child. He's actually very empathetic. He cares a lot about other people's feelings. And he's very snuggly and kind and, and considerate. And when we used to drive up to the city, we, you know, we, lived, we lived outside the city and we'd drive up sometimes to visit campus or to visit you, Vanessa, or to visit friends up here. We'd sort of invariably, like, at an intersection, we'd see a person asking for money with a sign that says, you know, I need money. And I think when Danny couldn't read, he just sort of said, well, here's a guy standing there, whatever, right? And then he acquired the ability to read what their request said. And he became very concerned if we drove past these folks, right? And we would try to have conversations with him about, like, you know, what's going on. And, and you know, you can't really explain the structural violence that makes homelessness possible <laughs> and, and the lack of support for mental illness and addiction. It's hard to explain to a four-year-old, right? Impossible to explain, really. And in some ways, those are probably just rationalizations because Danny would always just kind of whimper. Like we'd drive by somebody and Danny just kind of, hmm, hmm, hmm. 
in the back seat, right? Like for blocks. And, 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 you know, one time Clint was just like, Danny, do you want me to turn around and go, yes, please. Right. So this is how it is with Danny. Now we've moved to the city uh, and we walk through Harvard Square and there are always folks, often the same folks, familiar faces, folks who are asking for money and asking for help on the sidewalk in Harvard Square. And just before Thanksgiving, this is a story I'm relaying from Colette because she she told me this, but just before Thanksgiving, after the last day of school, kind of as a celebration, they went to a local bakery in the square to get some treats and kind of celebrate the end of a, the transition to their new schools. And they walked by two people who were asking for money on the sidewalk. And Danny this time took a slightly different tack. He was not whimpery. He was sort of defiant. He's like, mommy, why aren't you giving them money? And Colette was like, you know, a lot of grownups don't carry cash anymore, right? And Colette yeah. honestly said, you know, I don't have any money. And he's like, yes, you do. Because in his head, he's not thinking, I don't have any money in my wallet. He's thinking the truth, which is, yes, you do. There's a bank. There's an ATM right there. We have money. Let's do something about this, right? And Colette just said, no, <laughs> we're not going to do it. And they got their treats. And Danny was still talking. Like, why didn't we help those people? Accusing Colette, like, do not take us a different way home. We're like, well, we're going to walk by those people. You're going to give them some money, right? Uh, and eventually, after they left the bakery, Cammy, my now 12-year-old, she just turned 12, took out her wallet and she had some small bills and gave them to Danny and said, here, buddy, you can give some money to these folks on the way home. So why is this a story I tell about, about compassion? First of all, it's just a general sense of, I think our general understanding of what compassion is, is just to be caring, right? I think that we say compassion, we think of compassion as a, a general sense of being caring. And, and Danny has this, this kind of inborn sensitivity to the needs of others. But the reason I tell this story in particular is because, etymologically speaking, compassion is actually the Latin kind of transliteration of a Greek word, which is the word sympathy. Sympathia, which is the word we get from sympathy, which means to suffer with, to suffer with someone. Now, the word pathos, which is what passion and compassion and pathy and sympathy comes from, that word doesn't need to mean suffering. It can just mean to feel feelings, like to have a strong reaction, even like desire or any strong emotion would be understood as, a, as this kind of passion, but it's to feel with somebody, right? And what I thought was interesting in this situation is just kind of tracking Danny's feelings on this walk through Harvard Square, right? When he sees these folks who are asking for money, he feels strong emotion. It's not the same emotion that they must be feeling, right? It's a different emotion, but he feels it with them. There's like an accompaniment there, and it leads him to have like a little bit of anger, right? Like the emotion he's actually feeling is, Mom, why aren't you doing something about this, right? And then Cammy's response, which we could read as compassionate towards the people who are asking for money, is actually her feeling with Danny, right? She's taking care of him, feeling his kind of anger, his frustration, and responding to him. So just one of the things that's interesting about compassion, I think, is just how difficult or how problematic compassion can be when we assume we know what another person is feeling. Like, that's not feeling with somebody, I don't think. That's like feeling instead of somebody or trying to own their feelings rather than honor them. What's interesting about this story with Danny is that he was feeling with folks, but what he was feeling was entirely his own, and he was taking action based upon his own feelings, not upon what he thought the other people were feeling. So this is why I, I tell the story, because I think when we think about compassion, we need to think about not feeling instead of others or in place of others or taking their taking responsibility for others' feelings, but paying attention to what other suffering makes us feel and then responding to our own feelings. 
in the best and most loving way. So I love everything you just said, but I want to focus in on in the best and most loving way, Hmm. right? Because I think that that is just such a key part of compassion, right? Is noticing your own feelings and response to someone else's feelings. And then that choicefulness of like, okay, and so what am I going to do with my feelings now? Right. Right. Danny could do any number of things with his anger and he decided to like continue to advocate rather than to lash out in another way. That's right. That's right. That's also true for we grownups who don't have cash in our wallet and walk by these folks as well. Because what's the most loving thing to do in that situation? I mean, just because I'm a person that has worked with people who are unhoused in the past in my own life, like I know, I know what difference $5 makes. Right. And I I know it doesn't respond to structural racism, but I know that the, I also know if I'm honest with myself, I also know that the most loving thing is not to rationalize to myself that any gift I give would would not change any structural problems. Right. Right. Like there must be some more loving way to respond to the people around me and to a person who is asking for money than to tell myself that I don't need to respond in any direct way. Right. And this is, this is why it's hard to walk with Danny through the square, because I know he is going to actually call me to account in some way. Right. I, I do know better than him, but he also knows better than me because he's actually right. saying, yeah, that maybe I don't know the most loving thing. All I know is that the thing you're doing is not the most loving thing. And right. what the compassion he feels is, is, uh, is let's, let's try to be more loving. Right. In, yeah. in what we do for the, for, for these folks. Okay, Vanessa, you are you are beginning our 30-second recaps today. I'm leading the way. I will count you in. Three, two, one, go. So there's the creepy statue, and then Harry sees Ginny, and he's like, oh, Ginny, please don't be dead. And then Tom Riddle, who's a little fuzzy, is like, oh, she's not dead. She will be. And he's coming into more focus. And then Harry figures out that Tom Riddle is bad news because he takes his wand. And Harry's like, oh, my God, I'm going to fight you. And it turns out that he's Voldemort. And he is going, he sets the basilisk on Harry. And Harry is like, no. And the basilisk bites him. And he pulls the thing out. And Fox cries on his ears and he, on his arm. And he uses the basilisk thing to stab the diary it was perfect that was very well done (sighs) that was now see that was was a compassionate reading because you anticipated my suffering and performed as well as i will in this 30 second recap (laughs) you said you know what matt's going to fail i will soften his landing (laughs) with this 30 second recap that's so rude i thought i did like a b minus job i don't think i failed okay three two one go so Harry's in the chamber and Ginny is very close to death. And then Tom Riddle's there and J- Harry's like, Tom, you have to help me. But Tom is not a nice person. And uh, and he says, let's let's talk and I'm going to kill you, too. And then Harry gets very angry and he says some magic words of loyalty. And then Fox shows up and also the sorting hat. And, and Tom's like, that's not going to help. But it does help because the, the fox basically kills, a, like blinds the basilisk and Harry kills the basilisk. And then he stabs the diary and then they Ginny wakes up and they go see Ron and everything's going to be OK. That was really good. B minus. No, I think that was better than a B minus. Matt, there's a moment right at the beginning of this chapter that confuses me. Okay. Which is that Harry comes out the gate assuming good intentions in Tom Riddle. And this does not, yes, this does not strike me as regular Harry behavior. 
Hmm. Harry grew up in a house with Dudley and Vernon and Petunia. Harry has had to deal with Draco. He's had to fight Voldemort, Quirrell, Snape. And yet he's so trusting of Tom. Hmm. I'm wondering what you make of this theory, which is that he's so busy being concerned about Ginny strategy has sort of gone out the window that his compassion for Ginny, which might actually be compassion for Ron and the Weasleys is so complete that he can't see that other people might not be in on it. Or does this not even seem out of character for Harry to you? I don't know that it's out of character. I think that might be too generous. I think, or I think it doesn't need to be either or it can be both. And I think he is definitely in panic mode. That's why they're down there. And now that he's seen Ginny, why wouldn't someone want to save a, dying child, right? Right. And he doesn't have any strong reason to believe that Tom Riddle has will betray him or has betrayed Ginny, right? And this is where I think that it's maybe not out of character. I think that Harry does not have faith in every wizard. He knows that there are folks like Lucius Malfoy and Draco who should not be trusted, Crab and Goyle. But he has faith in Hogwarts, I think. He believes that mm-hmm. Hogwarts is a good institution. And the fact that Tom Riddle was given a special reward like he thinks that the mistake that Hogwarts made was well-intended, just wrong, right? Yeah. And one of the things that this book is really kind of uncovering is how we've used this metaphor before on the podcast, Vanessa, but that like this idea of wizarding supremacy is actually in the walls of the place. The place was built yeah. on this ideal. That's the kind of metaphor of the basilisk, that it's always lurking within the in the walls and it was built upon these ideals. And that kind of faith in Hogwarts, right, is exactly what Riddle exploits because it's easy to accuse the non-pureblood student, Hagrid, right? And it's easy to take advantage, even dip its wizarding bias and say like, well, of course he'll trust me because I'm a good wizard. Hagrid's genealogy is less sure or whatever, less certain, less, more suspect. He can be, he can be suspected. And I just wonder, like, in that space, in the Chamber of Secrets, all the weight of Hogwarts's institutional kind of authority is saying, yeah, Tom Riddle's a trustworthy person, mm-hmm. right? And I think Harry's just inclined to believe it. And and you're right, it is a mistake. It's absolutely a mistake. And I think that's part of where his his anger comes from. I actually love the way that this chapter, I mean, even just in those opening sentences is like wizarding supremacy is in the statues, right? Like yep. the basilisk comes out of the mouth of Sal- yep. Salazar Slytherin. Yep. And I feel like while we're in this continued conversation about what to do with things like Confederate statues and even, you know, more subtle forms of oppression that are structurally built into our society, physically, into our edifices, you know, into our art. I love that this chapter is like, nope, these things are poison. As long as you keep them up, you know, without context, bad things are literally going to come out of the mouth. And like, yep. you're just going to keep perpetuating these cycles. And yeah. I I find it deeply compelling in this chapter that the walls can do violence, right? If if they are saying or representing things that are hurtful to current students, they can mm-hmm. absolutely do violence, yep. which is an argument for creating like a compassionate space. So I have a, I have an example from the chapter that I think might press my definition for my story for more detail. Right. Or for more clarity. Right. If you remember my definition, I was like, you know, compassion etymologically is just feeling with. 
And you don't need to feel the same thing as the person who's suffering. Like you just have to feel with them and respond in some way, right? And I didn't say anything about, like I said, you know, in the most loving way, but like I didn't specify like what are the emotions that stir us to be more loving or more just, right? Because there's an argument that Tom Riddle is feeling with Ginny. He's feeling something. He sees Ginny dying. He sees her suffering and he feels boredom. Remember, he keeps talking about how boring, all how boring her whining is. And that she comes to him seeking compassion. Like she's, she comes to him seeking someone who can suffer with her. She wants to write down her sufferings in this diary. And Riddle takes advantage of that by like pretending to suffer with her in a particular way. But actually all he's feeling with her is this feeling of boredom, which he talks about over and over again. Feeling with has to be more than just feeling anything with, right? There is some implication of justice. There is some implication of care, of intending the good for the other implied in the definition, right? Because it's not enough to just be a sociopath and acknowledge another one is feeling something and feel nothing response, right? Because I know maybe maybe Tom Riddle here is sociopathic, but it seems like he is feeling something is boredom, disdain, impatience, right? And and those are the wrong things. Yeah. But here's the thing. This is like, so does compassion matter without action, right? Like, would it matter that Danny gets so upset about this if he didn't then insist on giving people money? Because like, sometimes I'm bored when people complain, but then I'm nice about it and ask follow-up questions. And so does it matter that I'm bored as long as I'm kind about it? Yeah, I think that's a a great question, Vanessa, because, you know, we've talked in this podcast in the past about, like, what's the relationship between what you feel on the inside and what you do on the outside, right? And, like, one of the things we've said over and over again is that, like, impact matters, right? And so, like, let's say you don't feel something deeply, but you go through all the motions of caring for somebody really lovingly, right? I want to call that compassion. And I'm not sure where we draw the line between, like, how much feelings matter and when they need to start giving over into action for us to kind of to recognize them as adequate or moral or just or or whatever. I mean, there has to be some action and there can't be no feeling. I'm not sure where the where the line is. I mean, I think that Fox might be an interesting place to look at this, right? Like Fox's tears heal Harry And in theory, Fox can't cry unless he's like having some sort of feeling, except that we know that people can fake crying, right? Like can make themselves cry. And maybe Fox, because he knows he has these magical tears, is like able to do it, right? And so the overarching argument upon first reading of Fox, Fox's tears healing Harry is that his compassion, his empathy for Harry, his grief for Harry revives Harry. But I think that there could be an argument that it doesn't matter. The tears are healing and Fox is like, I'm going to squeeze these out of myself no matter how I can, no matter what I have to do in order to do it because they have the magical power. Yeah. I think maybe it's, there has to have been compassion at one point, right? So when someone I love is telling me about their the frustrations of their day. And on that day, I happen to be short-tempered and not really care because yeah. I have cared in the past, right? Yeah. Because I've done the equivalent of like felt that grief and seen that my tears can heal, seeing yeah. that my follow-up questions mean a lot to the person. Yeah. I can almost like rely on my past compassion yeah. to teach me how to behave in this moment and be like, okay, this person likes when I go, ah, that's so annoying. Yeah. And there's like a resolve in you to just say like, it doesn't matter what I'm feeling because I care about this person. I am going to 
behave this way. And which actually makes me think my, the reading I just offered of Tom Riddle was wrong, I think, because, because I was saying that what he felt was impatience, right? But actually the word patience, what you're describing to me is patience, right? You're patient mm-hmm. with this person, even, even though you don't really want to hear the story, you're going to be patient with them and, and go through the motions of showing compassion, showing care. The word patience comes from the same root as compassion mm-hmm. and sympathy. To be patient means to, to, to feel those feelings, right? And so by definition, when Riddle is impatient and finds her boring, right? That's him just refusing to feel the feelings, refusing to feel the right feelings, right? I mean, it's interesting, though, when he's talking about how he manipulated her, he says, I was patient, I wrote back, I was sympathetic, I was kind. I mean, he's naming all, he's naming behaviors there, not feelings. Like he's saying, right. I went through the motions in order to make Ginny feel safe. The difference there it, between your example and Tom Riddle here really is intention, because you are going through the emotions in order to actually provide care for the person so they will feel cared for and loved so that they will be careful and loved, right? Whereas Tom Riddle is is going through the motions so that Ginny will feel cared for and loved so that he can exploit her and take advantage of her, right? which is evil, right? Right. And not compassionate for that reason. Matt, another moment where I'm like, I'm not sure compassion <laughs> fits into this one. I think it's so interesting is the moment where Harry says to Riddle, I don't know how you lost your power, but I know that I survived because my mother sacrificed herself for me. And then Riddle goes, ah, there's nothing special about you after all. Yeah. And I, the the satisfaction that he feels in that moment, I I recognized that feeling in myself of um, seeing behind the curtain and realizing that something that seemed completely complex and opaque and unachievable suddenly becomes clear. Mm-hmm. And it was, I just always like to pay attention to the moments in which I really identify <laughs> with Voldemort or Tom Riddle. And this was one, <laughs> maybe that's it. It's my compassion for Tom Riddle, that relief of looking at someone who you feel competitive with and being like, oh, we're the same. I, I read that moment differently. I think Tom's lying. Oh, Say more. Because Harry is special. He had so he had somebody who loved him that much, which is not what not what Tom Riddle had. He mm. has to say it's not special because that would mean that he is not special because no one loved him that much. No one was there for him to do that. I mean, this is what we yeah. hear in this story, right? Where where Tom talks about his muggle dad who abandoned his mother because she was a witch, right? Like there is this deep, deep emotional wound inside Tom Riddle. Like the psychology of Voldemort comes out in this scene. And that, I mean, the terrifying thing I think for Riddle and maybe for all of us is that that kind of protective love is one that someone has to give to you, right? But Voldemort, Voldemort did not have it from his family. And so he's trying to give it to himself. He's trying to give these protective charms to himself and spends all his energy and all the time before this and all the books after this, trying to figure out ways that he can depend upon no one else give himself that kind of protective charm. And Harry just was the lucky kid whose parents loved him and gave him that charm because they gave it to him for no other reason than that they loved him. And that charm not only protected him in that moment, it also kind of made him the kind of kid that is going to be able to lean upon others and depend upon others throughout the rest of these series of books, which continues to be the protective charm that supports him and saves him. So when I say that Tom Riddle's lying, I think he believes it when he says it. I think he says you're not yeah, special because yeah, yeah. you don't have any special magic. It's just love, 
right? Yeah. But Voldemort also knows that love is the one thing he couldn't give himself or that yeah. his that, that people weren't there to give him. And that is why he can't actually achieve the kind of protection Harry has. And so it, he needs it to be true when he says it, even as much as he believes it's true. Oh, I find that very compelling. And I mean, and we see evidence of this kind of continued love for Harry. It occurred to me while reading this chapter how loving Ginny was for going and stealing the diary back, right? Like that's yep. so brave and so self-sacrificing in yep. order to protect Harry, right? Like people are still doing these things for him. Yep. And also just like the beauty and vulnerability of yelling, like someone help, don't leave me, don't leave me alone, right? Yep. Like even when it's, you know, as Voldemort says, a songbird in a hat, Yep. Harry is just so relieved that something showed up for him and yeah. that he's not alone. That feeling right. is making him feel buoyed again and again yeah. and again. And that's why like the the width of 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 feeling with or suffering with the the compassion that prefix is so essential. There's something about company. There's something about being in this together that that makes such a makes such a difference. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. How do you feel about Ron's move at the end? Like Ginny has just survived and Ron's like, let's tease you about your crush on Harry. <laughs> Like, Ron is, like, helping Ginny through the wall. He's so relieved that she's yeah. alive. He's so relieved that she's alive. And then... Well, I think that Ron doesn't know... I mean, Ron doesn't know the state she was in. By the time she gets to the wall, perhaps if he had seen her, 
nearly dead on the ground, he might not have responded the same way. But I could also, isn't this just like siblings? Like the way you show affection to someone, if it's a habit in the moment of crisis will often still be the way you show affection to that person, even if it's not appropriate to the moment. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like I've, I've had this with folks. I, yeah, I guess I do it to you. It's just not compassionate. I well, no, that's my question. Is is it compassionate? Is I, it yeah. feeling with someone and like not knowing what to do with that feeling and so making a dumb joke? Like, I think is it, I think it kind of is. Like I like yeah. the habitual way I show affection for you is this way and I want to show it to you now and this is the tool I have. There's this yeah. really heartbreaking episode of, of This American Life, which uh, takes place in northern Japan, in one of the communities that was hit by the, the tsunami several years ago. And this guy put up a telephone booth in his in his backyard. And the telephone booth is not connected to anything. The phone inside the telephone booth is not connected any to anything. It's got no wires or anything. But there is a, re- a recording device in there. And people come in there and they make fake phone calls. Not fake phone calls, real phone calls to dead loved ones who died in the tsunami. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, in the Japanese language, it's, in Japanese custom, it's just not, you don't say, I love you to people. There are mm-hmm. different words you use. The word I, which is love, you don't actually say, aishiteru, which means I love you, is not anything you would ever say to people. Even in your close family, there are different phrases that you use to express affection. And the the recordings from this full booth are heartbreaking because it'll be like old men talking to their wives who were carried out to sea and they'll just be saying things like are you warm enough make sure you have a coat wherever you are because it might be cold right like they, like the way you have always shown affection to the person is going to be the way you show affection to them when given the opportunity to do so again and i just feel like these brothers tease Ginny. yeah right or wrong they tease Ginny. when Ginny comes back he's so relieved and just he, the words he has for her are the, the words he always has for her to show affection, right? Even though, if, even if they're not the the most fitting or most appropriate, uh, what I'd like to what I'd like to think is that because Ginny's in that system, that she feels some love from from Ron when that comes. But but who knows? Yeah, I think it just really hit me this time because in reading the chapter, I noticed how one of the things that she complained to Tom about was how much her brothers tease her. Oh, and so that's the teasing right. was right. Like teasing is one of the reasons that mm. she felt isolated. You're and right. I think I wonder if this experience makes her rethink that. We see her really horsing around with Fred and George later. Yeah. And I, I wonder if there's some sort of breakthrough of, you know, feeling love through teasing. But we we do know that like it's one of the things that made her feel isolated and it's the first thing she hears from a family member yep. when she gets out um it's i'm not judging yep. ron i'm just questioning no. my own i think like, you're right teasing i mean, strategies no yeah i think you're absolutely right cuz i'd forgotten about that line but you're right i i think the chances that it lands the right way for her are pretty slim <laughs> right now that you said that you you talk about her horsing around with with the boys later and there's some i mean Patron saint of survivors, right? There's something about her having survived worse than any of these other brothers that what she was teased for was being the smallest, being the youngest, being least ready for Hogwarts, whatever. And now she's got something that none of them can. Like she's she's been to the depths of the school and she's she's seen things and she's been places and and she she knows she's a survivor and she knows I feel like her interactions with her brothers and with every wizard from now on in the series, there is a there is a strength and a resilience that that's that's really clear in her. Yeah. 
So there's one last thing I wanted to talk about, and it's actually revisiting something we were talking about before, which was Dippet's failure to actually understand what was going on in the school and the way Tom takes advantage of Hogwarts's kind of ingrained wizarding bias and wizarding supremacy to get Hagrid expelled and also keep access for himself to the to the Chamber of Secrets, which is around this question of compassion, because one of the things I was thinking was that in that moment, when Dippet is confronted with with Tom Riddle and Hagrid, it's so much easier, one would expect, for Dippet to feel with Tom, who's a wizard, right, than to feel with the half-giant, half-wizard, right? Like, it's just, it's easier to be compassionate towards the people who are more like us, which is right. exactly what Tom Riddle knew, which is exactly why he knew he could get the half-giant expelled, because right. just naturally, instinctively, intuitively, Dippet would be less compassionate, with less inclined to feel with or be sympathetic to a person who's unlike himself. And that's what Riddle used to to frame Hagrid. And so it's just a reminder to all of us, right, to know that this is just a natural tendency, that we always feel more compassion. We always feel more easily with the folks who look like us, who we identify with. Right. And usually the folks we most need to feel compassion for are the ones who are least like us, who, are least, who we least right. identify with. Um, and so it's just a, another kind of call from the text to to do better and to try to extend the reach of our feeling to those with whom we have less affinity. Yeah. I mean, and that's how power maintains itself, right? Right. Compassion has to have some relation to justice. Otherwise, it's only feeling with. Right. I mean, this actually suggests that 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 relationship to justice is necessary. Like there is no compassion without some sense of justice because otherwise you're only feeling with people who are easy to feel with. And what you're, right. justice means feeling with people who are who are different with whom you, it doesn't come as easily or naturally by virtue of shared identity or affinity. So Matt, I picked a sentence at random for us to do parties with. And the sentence is, I bet Dumbledore saw right through you, said Harry, his teeth gritted. Okay, so step one is intended meaning. And so what is the intended meaning of the sentence? I bet Dumbledore saw right through you, said Harry, his teeth gritted. It's a fact. I bet Dumbledore saw right through you. I think this is true. I think that Harry does believe that Dumbledore saw through Tom Riddle. And I think Harry's probably at least partly right about that. But I think in terms of intention, I think Harry is saying this not just to say a true statement to Tom Riddle. I think his intention here is to irritate or needle or vex Tom, to frustrate and uh, to unsettle Tom by talking about Dumbledore and talking about how Dumbledore is superior to, to him. So the literal meaning is... Here's a true statement. Dumbledore saw right through you. The meaning behind that statement is, I I want you to, to feel some discomfort. What do you yeah. think? I completely agree. Okay. He's like, nobody was impressed by you. And he's trying to remind Tom that Dumbledore is still better than right. him. The right? only one that matters wasn't impressed by you. So you may have tricked right. all the, everybody else, but this one you didn't trick. Yeah. Yeah. You, Dumbledore always knew. Yep. So step two is remez, where we trace a word throughout the books. So, Matt, what word do you think that we should use? Well, the word teeth really stands out to me in this. Yeah. In this sentence. Great. 
Well, that makes sense. There is a tooth in this chapter. There's a basilisk fang, which I oh. would argue is a kind of tooth. There is. And it and it nearly tooth. kills Harry, but then it also kind of kills Tom Riddle. It kills a horcrux. And then yeah. that same basilisk tooth, I'm just going to keep calling it a tooth, yep. is used in book seven to destroy horcruxes. That's right. We also know that Hermione shortens her teeth. She sure right? does. Draco sure elongates her teeth. Snape makes fun of her teeth. And then Hermione shortens her teeth. Also, her parents are dentists. Mm -hmm. Like, how little do we have to track the word tooth? Because lots of people get bit, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots of people get bit in the books. Grayback yep. gets, his teeth get described. And yeah, absolutely. Lupin absolutely gets bit. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, right, teeth... I mean, teeth are able to cause violence or to help you nourish yourself, right? That's right. Or to or to indicate, I mean, we could also think about all the times people smile at one another in this book, right? right? And show their teeth to each other. Yeah. Okay, Matt, now we are doing Drosh, where we reflect on what lesson we would want to discuss if this was the text that we were preaching on. I bet Dumbledore saw right through you, said Harry, his teeth gritted. I think I would want to preach upon what it means to see another, to recognize another and to see through another, to see another, right? Because part of what Harry's talking about is sort of like seeing through the facade of your goodness into the kind of the evil underneath. But what we also learn in this chapter is that an even deeper layer is that there is this kind of deep emotional traumatic wound at the source of of Tom Riddle's pain. And that's also a version of seeing through that we might call ourselves to when we do the kinds of things that we were talking about before, when we try to to have more compassion, to try to feel with those who are least like us. Often that includes people with whom we're at odds or people who, with whom we're angry, like trying to see through not as an exposure of, of all the things that are wrong with them, but actually trying to see them completely and as generously and as wholly as we might see ourselves or those that we, that we do have affinities for. So I think that's what I would probably want to to preach about? What would you want to preach about, Vanessa? I think I would want to preach on quality downtime. <laughs> like, this is something that Tom Riddle should have reflected on. I think reflecting and looking back at, like, oh, that person knew that then. And, like, sort of thinking back on your younger self is a really helpful move. Like, I, th- I think we should be reflecting on our on our past in a significant way. And one of the things that I know that I feel like I don't have access to a lot is time that is totally unaccounted for, like just laying on the floor and letting my brain do some wandering or staring out a window or like one of the problems with Tom Riddle is that he has like no reflection instinct. He's always going forward. He's always about consuming and conquering and, you know, and the next thing. And I think that that's one of the ways that we turn ourselves into instruments rather than letting ourselves be fully human. Mm -hmm. So I think I would preach about that, trying to cultivate a practice of downtime. That's great. That's just hanging out down in the Chamber of Secrets, just relaxing. Yeah. Chilling out. Yep. Yep. So, Matt, it's your favorite part. It's the sode where we see if a, a, a new secret emerges to us. I bet Dumbledore saw right through you, said Harry, his teeth gritted. The secret that emerges to me is that Dumbledore, through seeing right through Tom, really missed an opportunity. If 
Dumbledore, rather than seeing through Tom, had really tried to connect with Tom. That Dumbledore could have been the person who loved Tom. By seeing through Tom, he could have been the person who's like, I love you anyway. And I, I think that it could be why Dumbledore is so committed to this. I think that Dumbledore really fails as a teacher to Tom Riddle. And like, I don't think we should see through children, right? I think we should like see through their nonsense to like get to their heart. But like, I think that as adults, it's our responsibility to try to not see through children, but really see them. So I think here's my secret. I think I actually got to a secret from this. Oh my God. I think it's that Harry sees through Tom this early on. I think by the final scene of book seven, he sees through, he sees through Tom, right? But even in this early in book two, he already knows all this backstory, all this history he's going to learn later and be revealed to him by Dumbledore in book six and book seven or whatever. Actually, he basically knows the broad outlines of it in book two, just from this quick encounter. And so what he's actually saying when he says, I bet Dumbledore saw right through you, what he's actually saying is, I see right through you. And I actually know what's going on. You're just a scared little boy. Yep. That's so. Yeah. yeah, So I think there's a secret. (gasps) Look at you. You did it, Matt. Great. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's now time for our voicemail. This week's voicemail is from Laura. 
Hi, Vanessa, Matt and everyone on your team. My name is Laura, I'm 21 and I'm from Germany. I love listening to your podcast because it makes me think about the books in a new perspective. Like when I was listening to your episode in book two about narcissism. And in this episode, you're talking about the mandrakes and how Professor Sport and his students care for them just enough uh, to ultimately sacrifice them to heal all the petrified students. And they're basically described as these human babies. And that make, made me think about Harry. Ultimately, Harry has to sacrifice himself in book seven and he has to die. Dumbledore knows this. Dumbledore cares throughout all the books for Harry, but just for the right amount. Like, Harry is, has to live with the Dursleys. Dumbledore obviously knows to some extent that the Dursleys are not a loving family or a home to Harry, but they still are enough of a family to him that the protective, protective magic works. And so Harry has to live there. And even when Harry's in Hogwarts, Dumbledore always yeah, teaches Harry enough to ultimately survive Voldemort and to defeat Voldemort, but never teaches him all the details and all of his suspicions. And that just made me think how there maybe is a parallel between the Mandrakes and Harry, because the people surrounding them obviously care for them just enough, and in the end, uh, they're sacrificed. And it made me wonder if those people just care for Mandrakes and Harry because of their own selfish reasons and not because they're a, a creature that is worth its own. Thank you for everything on the podcast. Bye. Thank you, Laura, for this voice memo. You've drawn a really interesting parallel between the way these Mandrakes are treated and exactly the reason why Harry gets so angry, I think, in book seven, because he feels like he's been a pawn in Dumbledore's plan from the beginning. And putting those two examples side by side really raises all the problematic moral questions of asking people to sacrifice themselves. I think there is one difference, which is hope, right? And I don't think it's a sufficient difference. I think that your critique and the the worries that you that you that you give rise to in your voice memo stand, even if there is the difference of hope. But we know from the King's Cross encounter in book seven that although Dumbledore knows that Harry has to be willing to die, he hopes that he will not have to remain dead, right? Like there's a scene where he's talking to Harry and Dumbledore is really happy because he suggests like, I had hoped that we would arrive at this place and you would have the chance to go back. All I knew is that you had to be willing to die, but I hope that there would be this kind of lingering protective charm that would allow you to escape the permanence of death. And that hope actually does turn out in the end. And so I think the fact that he has that hope makes us think that maybe Dumbledore is not quite as callous as Professor Sprout and Madame Pomfrey in the way that they slaughter the mandrakes. That Dumbledore thinks this is a necessary thing, but he hopes it's not a permanent thing or he hopes that there's some way out of it. But again, even if that, all that's true, the moral problem you raise stands and the comparison brings it into uh into greater light. So thank you, Laura. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who have been lost. Chrissy Scanlon, who was 91 and a mother of two. Brant Ventimiglia, who was 40, a musician and never met a stranger. Joyce Espenson, who is 89, a beloved grandmother, teacher, world traveler, 
an avid Chicago Cubs fan. Brenda, who was a loving aunt and a ferocious hugger. Lisa Kohler, who was 46, a teacher, friend, and trivia wizard. And Norman Adama, who was 64, a craftsman and a grandfather of 17. May their memories be a blessing. Vanessa, who would you like to bless this week? I'm going to bless our darling Ginny. I'm sure I blessed her last time, but I mean, this this is a, a great trauma that she is going through. And I think I just want to use this opportunity to bless all victims, right? Ginny didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. She didn't, she wasn't irresponsible in any way. She's going to be a little bit victim blamed in the next chapter. Um, And I just want to say like, this really isn't her fault. This was um, a bad man exploiting her. And so I would just like to offer a blessing to Ginny and to anyone out there who has been exploited and say that it really, really isn't your fault. Matt, what about you? Vanessa, I would like to bless Harry. And there are all kinds of reasons to bless Harry in this chapter, some of which we talked about during our theme conversation. But I just, I want to bless him from one particular moment, which is at the end of the chapter when he he refrains from revealing to Ron in that moment of the siblings reunion that Ginny was the one who opened the Chamber of Secrets. He's just like, you know what? Now's not the time. Let's let them have this moment where Ron teases her. <laughs> Let's let them have this, let them have this moment that this information will all come out. It's actually not as important right now. It's not, it wasn't her fault, right? Like he knows that that's not the most important thing. And that if he re- says it now, it will be misinterpreted, misconstrued, the importance will be misplaced, whatever, and just leaves it for later. And I, I think that's, that's great. It deserves a blessing. Well, Matt, next week we're going to be finishing the book, Chapter 18, Dobby's Reward, and we always end on the theme of love. So I will tell a story on that theme. Great. Can't wait. Love that theme. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have a Winnie the Pooh virtual pilgrimage coming up and a Pride and Prejudice in-person pilgrimage coming up. You can find out more at readingandwalkingwith.com. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. This week, we'd like to thank Laura for their voicemail, Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkile, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. And so it, right, like, which is an argument for creating, like, a compassionate space. Hufflepuff University, everyone. (laughs) 
I'll teach the lot is the motto. 